good morning and welcome to Journey. Good to see everybody here today. What an awesome day and happy Father's Day once more. You know, I count being a dad uh, one of the greatest privileges of my life. I really do. I, uh, uh, what a blessing to be a dad and, and to be able to share with our kids. We're going to see a couple of them uh, this afternoon, so we're excited about that. You know, uh, uh, kind of interesting about dads, and I love that little video because it's so true. Uh, dads would never say that, but those are the opposite of things we always say, right? Uh, and you know what? Dads have got a reputation for telling bad jokes, dad jokes. They even have the name, dad jokes. So I thought, uh, I really ought to tell you a dad joke, all right? So I got one for you. Um, so this dad is eating lunch with his kids and his family. And, uh, you know, what I've noticed about dads is they're the cleanup crew. You know, a dad's like, you don't, you want that? You know, so uh, this, nev- this almost never happened. But let's just imagine one day that dad had some food left on his plate. So there's food left there, and a waitress comes up to him and says, uh, sir, would you like a box for that? Like the box for that? He goes, no, but I, I would arm wrestle you for it. Yeah. I think my timing was better first hour. Well, they were a little more awake. But you know what I bet? That some of you are going to use that this afternoon. I know I am tonight. We'll see how it goes. I'll let you know. Well, guys, we are in a study. We've been for a few weeks now on the book of Colossians. And um, I I wanted to share a couple stories that caught my attention uh, last few weeks. You probably saw these, uh, but they're pretty remarkable if you think about it. The first one was by a little boy named Kenneth Howard. He was a 22-month-old toddler, 22 months old, not even two yet. So if you can imagine what that age is. Uh, This little boy wandered away from home on a Sunday afternoon and was gone for three days, missing for three days. And finally on Wednesday afternoon, they found him safe and sound, kind of exhausted, a little bit worse for wear, uh, but he was safe and was found by the member of a rescue squad. The second story was about a 35-year-old woman. Her name was Amanda Eller, and she went missing in Hawaii. Maybe you heard about her. She was hiking by herself, got in this huge park, and got lost for 16 days. So for over two weeks, she was alone uh, in this park and uh, had injured herself, but overall she was pretty healthy. Now, both those stories were interesting, but both of them were found because people did not give up. Because people did not give up. Little Kenneth was found because hundreds of neighbors, even going against the idea, I mean, they were well past the 24, 48 hours where, uh, you know, you can expect to find someone safe, but they would not give up, and they found the little boy safe and sound. That's amazing. And what about Amanda? Two, over two weeks. And the reason they found her was because one of her friends put together a GoFundMe page to hire a helicopter to search the rugged terrain, and it was in that helicopter alone that they found her. What that tells me is that whenever someone is lost, we pull out the stops to find them. We're going to do whatever possible to find that which is lost. I believe Jesus told a story or two about that as well, did he not? But here's the thing. This is what God did for us. God pulled out the stops to save us. He gave his one and only son to come to earth to rescue us. His name was Jesus. And Jesus means God our Savior or the chosen one of God. And you know, when you think about it, Jesus is the most important person who ever lived, ever walked the earth. He never traveled over 100 miles from where he was born. He never ran a company. He never was a politician, never held an office, a good thing probably. He never married, never had children, but his life 
was so impactful that it has changed everything in the world, and even, in fact, uh, the way we measure time. His birth and resurrection are the two biggest holidays, even in our secular calendar. 2,000 years later, Christmas and Easter are the big ones, right, that we all celebrate. There are more paintings of Jesus, more books written about Jesus, more stories told about him than anyone who, has, who ever lived on the entire earth. And he is so important that the most important question ever to be asked of you is, who do you say that Jesus is? Who is Jesus? And you know what? Everybody has an opinion about that, don't we? Everybody has an opinion. Our Jehovah's Witness friends would say, Jesus is not truly God. In fact, Jesus is a created being. He is the archangel Michael. Or the Mormons would say, well, he is a polygamist. He's a half-brother to Lucifer who became God, and we can become God's with our own planet where we live with our multiple wives who are eternally pregnant. Which doesn't sound like heaven, does it? Men or women, right? Or the Christian scientist, which by the way is not Christian or scientist either one, would say Jesus is not God. Muslims would say Jesus is a prophet who is inferior to Muhammad, their prophet. The Hindus and Buddhists would say that Jesus was a great teacher and enlightened man, but he was not God. And I think that simple fact about who Jesus is is obviously what sets Christianity apart from all other religions because we truly believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son, the only Son of God, and the only way to get to heaven is through him. That's what we believe about Jesus, and that is what is so distinct, and we cannot change that or pervert that or expand that. That is who Jesus is and where our hope lies. And so today we're going to go to Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to see a picture, a real description of who Jesus is. And it was written by a man who knew Jesus pretty well, who had spent a lot of his life investigating Jesus, not only his personal study, but also by the inspiration of God. This is written by a man named Paul, who formerly was named Saul. Saul was a Jew. He was brilliant, educated man, who at first part of his life, the first half of his life, hated Jesus. What he knew about Jesus, he despised. He would not acknowledge that Jesus was the Son of God. In fact, he made it his mission and his job to oppose Jesus and all Christians and to arrest them and imprison them and kill as many as possible until one day God stopped him in his tracks on the road to Damascus, blinded him, and Paul met Jesus for the first time, really, gave his life to Christ, and then worked as hard in the cause of Christ as he had worked to hurt the cause of Christ before. And Paul gave up everything in his life. He gave up his family, his position, his reputation. He gave up his money, his wealth. His health was broken because of his faith. In all of that, to follow Jesus and to preach Jesus. And so in Colossians chapter 1, he tells us through an explanation as to who Jesus is. I think he's pretty qualified to do so. And so let's jump in Colossians chapter 1. Who is Jesus? The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 
You know, I don't know, what I was uh, talking before first service, I was speaking to someone about the, the life that's in the Word of God and how when we read the Bible sometimes, we see things that we had never totally grasped before and it becomes alive all over again. And, and this scripture is kind of like that because what we're going to see here is perhaps the most compelling and descriptive picture of who Jesus is in the entire Bible. And I hope that by the time you walk out here, you're going to say, wow, I, I see Jesus a little bit clearer, some of the things I knew, some of the things I never thought about, but it's so compelling about who Jesus is. And so we're going to just take some time to do that, just look at Jesus. We're going to do that, and I've got 10 points. I know that's scary to us because it's normally last or none, uh, but um, I try to always have a point in the message, but I don't list three, all right? Today I got 10. So don't get worried because we're going to move through them really, really fast. If you're going to write them down, you're going to have to stay with me, okay? Who is Jesus in the words of the Apostle Paul? First of all, Jesus is the image of God. He is the image of God. In verse 15, it says, he is the image of the invisible God. You know, we know that we cannot see God with our visible eyes. In fact, the Bible says that no man can see God and live. But Jesus makes the invisible God visible. In fact, Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. You know, we've heard uh, and, and know people whose, little, whose son looks just like their dad. And you could say, you look just like your father, and Jesus looks just like his father. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now you might say, well, you know, we see God's hand in, in nature. People say, oh, I just want to go out, I want to work, go to church, I just want to see God in nature. But you know, you cannot see the true God in nature at all, because he's only revealed in his son Jesus Christ, and everything that we need to know about God, we see in Jesus. He is the image of his Father, his heavenly Father. Other religions have statues or symbols to represent their gods. That was a big deal in the Old Testament. They had symbols and statues of gods and all of Baal and other gods. But there is no image of God. Jesus is the only image or likeness of God that we have. And we do not need any other symbol or image of him, only Jesus. Secondly, Jesus is the ruler over all creation. In verse 15, it says, he is the firstborn over all creation. You know, we have all read books and probably heard about it and know the reality of how birth order defines us. The older child, the younger child, the middle child, those sandwiched in between. We know how birth order defines us, but in that day, birth order was very important and it was the most important thing because the firstborn got everything almost. There wasn't a lot left over when the firstborn claimed what was rightfully theirs through the inheritance. And so Jesus is the firstborn. He is over creation. He is not part of creation. And what this means is, above everything, Jesus first. The principle laid down that Jesus is first. First in everything. First in life. First in family. First in career. First in finances. First in relationships. Jesus first. And if Jesus is not first in your life, in everything, then you need to reorganize it to make him number one. Because only when he is in his rightful place, which is number one, then everything else will fit in around him. If you try to fit him in second, third, fourth, or fifth, or any other way, any other order, it will not work. Jesus first, firstborn of creation. Number three, Jesus is the creator of all. The creator of all. In creation, we see a designer we see a creator of the world around us. Someone made that. 
No one can honestly, with a straight face, say anything different. If you believe that everything we see and enjoy came from nothing, then you have more faith than I do. I tip my hat to you. Because I, can't, I don't have that much faith. I have faith in a creator God who explains how he did it, when he did it, the order he did it, how it was done. I believe that. But if you believe that came from nothing, then you got more faith than I do. It's obvious there is a design, intelligent designer that created everything we have. And that designer is Jesus. That's what it says. In verse 16 it says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. You know, everything that we see and experience was created, and he gave it to us to have dominion over. You know, I was thinking the other day, I, I, just, I was driving down the road, how could someone possibly be an atheist living in Kentucky? I mean, if you lived in the desert, maybe. You could say there's nothing but sand. But in Kentucky, the most beautiful state in the, in the country, by, beyond doubt, how could you say there is no God? How could you say that no one sustains or, or provides all of this for, for us? It's hard to believe. And all of this is a gift from Jesus to us to enjoy. And you know what? Life itself is a gift. We are a part of his creation. And as part of his creation, we must give an account to our creator. Because one day, the creator will recall the creation. And everyone who has come from him, and we have, so also we will return to him and we will answer to him. As to how we have lived the life that we have been given. Number four, Jesus is eternal. He is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. I had a conversation with somebody a few weeks ago, and, and they said that Jesus did not exist until he was conceived in Mary. And you know what? I didn't even know what to say, because I think anything I said would probably have been an insult to that person personally. But you can't be a Christian and believe that. Uh, the Bible teaches Jesus he's eternal. In verse 17, it says, he is before all things. Before all things. He is not part of all things. He is before all things, not a part of creation. We've already seen that. In Genesis chapter 1, Jesus said, let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is God. He has always existed. He has no beginning. He has no end. And he will always exist and is preparing an eternal place for us. Eternal. Jesus is eternal. Number five, Jesus is the sustainer of all. Not only did Jesus create everything, he didn't just walk, create it, and then walk away. And I've heard people say, well, you know, uh, yeah, creation was made, and God just kind of made it, wound it up, turned it loose. And when it winds down, it's all over. It's not true. God is involved in creation. Jesus is a part of things. He created it. He now sustains it. It says in verse 17, in him all things hold together. Jesus is the glue that keeps things in our world from falling apart. I believe that in our whole in creation, in our earth, in, in the way things work, how things continue on, systems, plants, flowers, animals, everything has a process, and Jesus is the one that holds it all together. And when you feel like your world is falling apart, and you feel like there is no hope, whatever it may be, you can give it to him, and he will hold it together. He will hold it together because he is the sustainer of all. Number six, he is the head of the church. He is the head of the church. He imagined and envisioned the church 
He started the church. He built the church. He died for the church because he is the head of the church. The body of Christ, the bride of Christ, these are names that the church experienced to show the connection between the church and Christ. And you know, the church is pretty special because it belongs to Jesus. Not because of who we are, but because we belong to Christ and we've been made pure and holy through him, we are special. People say they love Jesus but hate the church. It can't be done. You cannot do that. You really can't. I've never seen anybody really walk with Jesus seemingly that doesn't have connection with the church because that's the way we come to the Father, through Jesus, through the body of Christ. Now, I'll tell you, I know enough about the church to tell you the church isn't perfect. Honestly, I've seen the church all of my life, but one day Jesus will make it perfect. In verse 18, it says that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. And I love that analogy because it just makes sense to me. The human body moves and functions, but nothing happens before the mind tells it to do that. The head is what does that. Even, even there may be some reflexes that are programmed, but those uh, that happen without thought, but those are programmed by the brain to happen. The brain is what leads the body, and when the brain is off, the body is off. We all know that to be true, right? And Jesus is the head of the church. He tells us what to do. The church is not a democracy. It is a theocracy. The church is not some club where everybody gets together and votes our opinion, and that's what we do. That is never intended to be the church. The church is a theocracy where Jesus leads it. I'm not the head of the church. Our elders are not the head. Jesus is the head. But our task as leaders is to seek and pray as to what Jesus wants the church to do and then have the courage to go do it, to lead as he leads us and be led by his Holy Spirit because the Father, Son, and the Spirit all work in tandem together. And that's how the church is to be led. And you know, another problem we have today is the churches struggle with consumerism. We want the church to provide everything for us just the way we like it. It has uh, consumerism, repl- consumerism has replaced Christ in the church. We want the church to give us what we want. Why? Because the customer is always right. Here's the problem. You and I are not the customer. Jesus is. He is the customer that we're seeking to please, not one another, you know. And it just isn't it. Some churches, you know, do this, the consumerism idea they test the wind, you know. What is the wind? Which way is the wind blowing? That's where we're going to go. And that's never how the church is intended to be. Jesus is the head of the church. He told us everything that we need to know. He has told us all about the Father that we need to know. And we have to be more concerned with pleasing Him than we do about what people want. In our culture, that is a hard thing for people to accept. Number seven, Jesus is alive. He is alive. We can state the obvious here, but we ought to be reminded of that every day. In verse 18, it says, He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. This is the greatest news of all time. We've grown accustomed to it, perhaps even uh, unaware of it, or don't think about it enough, but Jesus is alive. There is, excuse me, no other religion that claims their leader is alive. None of them. I mean, every one of them know where their leader is, and they make pilgrimage to go back to see his grave, but but Jesus is alive. The Jews know where Abraham is. You know, the Muslims know where Muhammad is. Buddhists know where Buddha is. But Jesus is nowhere to be found on this earth. You know, we know that Jesus, when he died, he was laid into a tomb. But on the third day, he came back to life again. 
And I'm sure the early church knew where Jesus was buried. They probably went there for a while, but after a while, who gets tired of seeing nothing? And they didn't go back. They, they just, you know, decided, we're not going to go back there. Jesus is alive. He's in heaven. That's who we worship. That's where we focus on. And, and there is a place called to be the tomb of Jesus. Excavation was done at the site to believed where he, to be where he was buried. But you know what they found? Nothing at all because there's nothing there. Jesus is alive. And Paul says he is the firstborn from the dead. Now, what does that matter? Well, for a lot of reasons. It, it verifies who he said he was, the Son of God, came back to life again. But you know, personally, I want some of that good news too because I believe that when I die, I will come back to life again. And I will live eternally with the Father because Jesus has opened the way. He is the firstborn of those who have died. Number eight, Jesus is fully God. He is fully God. One thing that sets Jesus apart from all other religions or Christianity apart is that Jesus is fully God. Skeptics say, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God. That's not true. That is absolutely not true. I don't know where that came from, but that's, that doesn't even make sense. Why did they kill Jesus? Was it because Jesus was a good man? No, there were lots of good men. They, didn't, they don't kill good people. Was it because Jesus was a great teacher? No. Was it because he taught love? No. Was it because he healed people? Those seem to be good things, right? They didn't kill him for that. They killed him because he claimed to be God. In fact, Jesus even used the phrase, he used this special phrase that they were afraid of. They were even afraid to say it, but it was God's name in the Old Testament, I am. When, when they said, who, who sent, you know, tell us who, who our God is, and God said, tell them I am. That's enough, I am. Describing himself. Well, Jesus used the same words. John chapter 8, he says, the truth is, before Abraham was, I am. Now, to us, that doesn't mean much, but when he said that, I'm sure there was a collective gasp because Jesus was claiming to be God here. And that would be, if it were not true, it would be blasphemy. But it is true. And he proved that to be true. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, Paul says, For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, saying that Jesus is fully God, fully God and yet fully man. You know, a lot of people think that Jesus was just a good man, but if he were a man and claimed to be God, he would not be a good man. He would be a liar. But instead, he is fully God. Number nine, Jesus is reconciler. He is reconciler of mankind. You know, sin breaks the relationship with God, severs the relationship. That was true in the garden with Adam and Eve. That's what the fall was all about when they sinned and suddenly they were ashamed of their nakedness and they went and hid from God and it broke the relationship. Never was it the same again. And that is true with you and I as well. Just one sin breaks our perfect union with God and it must be dealt with. I don't care if it's just a little white lie, whatever you may term it or call it or minimize it, it breaks the relationship. But Jesus came as a bridge to reconcile us back to God. And only he could do that. Why? Because he is both God and man. And so he reached out and he bridged that gap between us and God. In verse 20 it says that God was pleased through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So Jesus died to reconcile us to God, paying the price himself that we should have paid ourselves. Would you die for somebody? We hope we never have to do that, but would you die for someone? And if so, who would you die for? Would you die for your family? 
Most of us dads would say, yeah, I, I would die for my family. Would you die for a friend? That's a little more to ask, isn't it? The Bible says greater love is no one than this, that a man would die for his friend. Okay, maybe. Would you die for a stranger, someone you'd never met? Would you die for an enemy, someone who was sworn enemy of yours? Would you die for them? Probably most of us wouldn't do that, to be honest with you. But Jesus died for all the above. He died for his enemy. He died to make his enemy family. And everything and everyone on earth at this point are the enemy of God in its natural state. We're the enemy of Christ, but he died to bring us to the Father and to restore us. God's put everything under the authority of Jesus Christ so that his death on the cross would reconcile them and us to God. And one day that will be made so. There will be reconciliation. Philippians chapter 2 says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That God has given Jesus that kind of authority, that kind of role. And apart from Jesus, we're all condemned to stay that way to be away from him, condemned to, to eternity in hell. But every one of us are invited to be reconciled and saved and brought to the Father through Christ. And here's one thing that's true, that every one day, every knee will bow to Jesus, either willingly or unwillingly. I know there are people who are so hardened against Jesus who say, I will never acknowledge Jesus. And I got news for you, one day they will. Because he will either be the Lord and Savior that we have longed to see and be with for eternity, or he will be the one that, we, that people are forced to acknowledge and they submit to his, his judgment, his authority, where he will condemn them to eternal separation from God and all that is good. That is a truer statement that has never been made. But the question remains, does the eternal God pay the price for your sin or do you pay the price for sin eternally? Because one or the other will, will one day happen. And then lastly, number 10, Jesus is the only Savior. He is the only Savior. Paul summarizes what he's been saying here. He says, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. You see, Jesus is the only way that God has chosen for us to be saved. The only way. Jesus said it plainly in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so when we see Jesus, we see him in a big role. Why do we use 10 points? Because it takes at least 10 to explain who Jesus is. Probably more. We could make it infinite, right? But he's a big Jesus. He's a big, big Savior. And this is a big gospel, the only hope that we have. The Bible tells us that we accept Jesus as the Lord of our lives if we continue in our faith and we are established and firm and do not move from the hope that we have in the gospel, then we'll be presented to God holy in his sight without blemish 
and free from accusation. I love the way it describes that because you know what? Only Jesus has the power to save us and to preserve us. But we must be faithful. We must be faithful. Many people begin the journey, but then they give up or they fall away. And we all know people in our lives and we all struggle with that temptation ourselves to get distracted by everything else. But the promise is given only to those who persevere. Those who persevere who are established and firm and continue on to the end of life. Those are the ones to whom the prize will be rewarded. Those who finish the race, not just those who start the race. So today, let me ask you a couple of questions. If Jesus were to come today, how would it be with you and he? How would it be? You know, I told first service that I don't spend a lot of time sitting around thinking of heaven. Every now and then on a beautiful day, I do. Friday, I did. It was a heavenly day, in my opinion. Number one, I was outside, off work, and that made it really good. I was doing what I enjoyed doing, and the sunshine and the wind. I mean, this, I just thought, man, this is a day like heaven will be. It was almost perfect. I don't spend every day thinking about that. And, and honestly, when I think about the Lord's return, in my mind, somehow it gets projected into the future sometime. Maybe even when I'm dead and gone. But there's no guarantee of that. The Lord could come today. What a better day to come than on the Lord's day, on Father's day. What a way to celebrate that. But if that were to happen today, how would it be between you and he? What would that be like? Do you have a relationship with how? How would he find you? We've seen who Jesus really is here. But the real question for you personally is, who do you say he is in your life? Is he a big savior? Is he big enough to be bigger than everything else in your life? Is, does he meet this description that Paul gives, of him, give, gives us of Jesus? That's the issue. And that's what brings us to our conclusion today and also a time of decision. He's a big Lord that requires a big decision. He's everything we talked about and so much more. But what we've talked about, we, you must acknowledge in order to have a relationship with him. For a Savior who gave it all for you, he asks us, are you willing to give it all to him? And that's what we're going to wrap up with today. You know, we always have a time, I always try to stand up front to see if people would want to talk about their relationship with the Lord or some prayer moment. And I'm going to be there available. I'm going to be right here in front this morning. And, and maybe God's put upon your heart to respond to who Jesus is. Maybe today is the first time it ever came in perspective in a clear way. And it's on your mind. And you know today is the day that you need to respond to him. And if so, then I would say do not walk outside of those doors because there are so many things just waiting to distract you, to grab your attention. Satan is, you know, there in, in everything we do to, to minimize who Jesus is. And we've seen how big he is. And my challenge is to respond to him while that is fully aware in your mind of who Christ is. So I'm going to be right here. If you want to talk, I would love to have a moment. We can plan a later talk, whatever it may be. But I encourage you to do that, decide today. And while we're doing that, we're going to also have a moment to celebrate how, by how big Jesus is, the Lord and Savior who gave his life for us. And we do that through our time of communion. We're going to ask you or invite you if you are a believer, even if you don't attend here, if you are a follower of Christ, and he invites you to his table to come 
And there at the table, we'll find a piece of bread and a cup of juice that represent the body and the blood of Christ that was broken and shed for us. He invites us to come and to taste this and experience this, to be drawn closer to him and to examine our hearts and our lives. Just some of the questions we've been asking already in this time of communion. And we invite you to come and share. So let's pray together as we approach the, the table. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. It's Jesus everything. He is first above all and over all. And Lord, may we put him first in our lives, not just this moment on Sunday morning, but every moment that he would always be in our heart, in our mind, in our thoughts. And Lord, we would live our life accordingly, that our Christian walk would reflect what we say, our talk. God, we love you. We want to worship you. We thank you for this communion meal, the Lord's Supper. And how significant it is, God, uh, help us never to take that for granted, to never minimize the importance of these simple uh, elements. God, we would see Jesus in them, his body and his blood poured out for us, Lord. And as we commune, help us to examine ourselves. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.